0: When it comes to guests on Hire Learning, we are always trying to bring you the most innovative thought leaders around. And today's guest is no exception. Jordan Berry is a people, HR, and culture expert that has advised numerous startups and Fortune 500 companies and been the chief people officer at multi-billion dollar organizations like Tesco. He started his career at Shell where he learned all about great culture. And we'll talk about things like how important EQ is for leaders, the bottom line impact of culture, and what you're looking for from a leader and CEO around setting the culture for their company. This episode was incredible, and Jordan even went as far as to assess MSH in our culture. So I'm really excited for you to hear it and let us know your thoughts. Welcome to another episode of Higher Learning. I am your host, Oz Rashid. Today, my friends, we have a very special guest. And I usually say very special guest, but I really mean it today. I'm so excited for today. We are going to be speaking with Jordan Berry, award-winning and renowned HR people and culture expert. You've worked at so many different places. We're going to get into that. Jordan, how the hell are you?
1: I'm really good. Pleasure. I liked the introduction. That was uh, full of energy. And I I don't know if I'm living up to the title. Well,
0: better get your coffee ready, mate, because I'm definitely bringing the heat here. I am so excited for this. And we're gonna have a little bit of a different format because we wanna find out a little bit about you. We wanna find out what makes you tick, but you're also gonna ask me some questions. And so I'm gonna be on the firing line. And so that'll be good for our uh, our listeners as well. So let's start here because you've worked at multi-billion dollar organizations. You've been a chief people officer. You're doing consulting now. I wanna to talk to you about culture because it's obviously your bread and butter. It's something that you've thought a lot about. This is what you coach and guide people on. So let's yes. talk about your career because you've been in many different places, but when did you first realize the importance of culture in a company and the type of impact it can have. Was it in a bad situation or a good
1: situation? No, was with- good. It was a good one, actually. And and what's really interesting for me, I don't know if I necessarily recognized just how powerful it was at the time. So I was really fortunate. I joined, the f- my first career was at Shell. Um, and Shell's obviously a world-renowned organization. I always describe Shell as a, a kind of a stick of rock because wherever you cut it, you could stop anybody in any reception, anywhere in the world, and everybody would have had that same kind of, you know, subscription to values, to behaviours. Everyone was united in that common purpose. And that's what made that, that organisation so fantastic. So for me, starting a career in HR, in an organisation that is world-renowned, that does everything the best of the best. One in a thousand people get in through the door when they're applying, for example. So it's a real privilege to work in an organization like that, where leaders do what they're supposed to do, people behave properly, things workers are supposed to, managers know how to lead, all of those amazing things. So at the time, obviously being a bit of a young buck, um, I don't know necessarily, that was my first exposure to corporate life. So really it was af- afterwards. I mean, I, I always knew that Shell was a fantastic place to work because of the people that I was surrounded with, but it was later. When you go out into the big bad world and you go to brownfield sites or you work in startups, you do all of the different industries and sectors. That's when you realize what a privilege it was working in an organization like that. And that's something that I will always talk about even now, 20 years later.
0: That's how you can tell it resonated with you. That's fantastic. So I'm interested because you were in HR and when when it's a good culture, you don't feel like it's happening. It doesn't feel like it's intentional. But obviously when you're in HR, it is very much intentional. I'm interested, what are some of the practices or things Shell did to make sure that the vision was clear, that the values were clear, that you were hiring people that adhered to those and that they were able to recite those no matter where you were in the world? Was there, obviously there was a lot of intentionality. What were some of the things that they did to ensure that?
1: It was very, very sophisticated. So, I mean, we were doing things in Shell that, you know, I've worked in organisations now that are only starting to do this kind of thing. So, for example, if you had ambitions or you were on a fast track programme in Shell to get to a certain level, which would be senior exec, they used to test things like EQ. So normally most, and this was 20 years ago. So, you know, normally most organisations would be, you know, they have an idea and a kind of, um an awareness that um emotional intelligence is really important with, amongst leaders alongside iq but what was really nice over there if you didn't have a certain level of eq in shell then you weren't you weren't actually permitted and supported to go beyond a certain point of management and that i mean 20 years ago that was just kind of unheard of and also there was a real focus on what i really liked about shell because it was an international business it really focused on behaviour as part of the assessment methodology. So it was very clear values, behaviors, everybody subscribed to that. And that transcended everything. And I think for me, one of the things that I talk about a lot with CEOs and people, clients, whatever, is what are the rituals that you have as an organization that really kind of bring your culture together that make it something that people can feel and they subscribe to. And Shell was full of rituals. So, you know, we had town hall sessions once a week where senior leaders would dial in and they were accessible and anyone could ask any question. So, you know, it's those types of things I think that keep, because culture for me is the magic of an organisation. It's the glue that holds everything together. So really, this is about your commitment to doing certain things that resonate with the people in your organisation that make them feel part of something. Michelle was very good at that.
0: I love that. So one of the theories I have is that, you know, we hear a lot about startup culture. And I'm just going to be frank with you. Our company has grown over the last 13 years. And it's one thing to do it when you've got, obviously, 10 people, 50 people, 100 people, 200 people, right? right. But as you start to scale, right? And I got to be honest with you, I, there was three partners in this company in 2011. And I kid you not, you know what kept me up at night? It wasn't, can we make enough money to keep the doors open? Is It's not, can we get enough customers through the door? I was always thinking about, because I was so positive that this was going to be an amazing company with an amazing culture. I used to think about how are we going to keep what keeps us special when we're 1,000, 5,000 people, which I do not recommend that for any founder. Please make sure that you get to a point where you can actually start to have those problems. But those were the type of things I was thinking about. And so my theory on this is that when you have a large organization like Shell, it is a near impossible task to have a universal culture that's end-to-end, that it sounds like what you're describing. And so when people have asked me, how do you scale culture? My take is that you have to have phenomenal management. Management is the one that sets the micro culture within each team, which allows you to scale. And if you put a lot of intentionality on who you bring in as a manager and what the behavioral attributes are that you want for them, then you have a chance at being able to scale that globally um, across different functions at the front lines versus the corporate office, whatever it may be, and only then. but you have to have great management. Do you agree with that? And if you do, because it sounds like you do, what do you think are like the key attributes that make an
1: amazing manager? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with that. And it's really funny because when I when I start out in an organization or with a CEO, I get them to close their eyes and I get them to talk to me and visualize what their culture is going to feel like, what it's going to look like. Start with an aspiration, start with a vision, and then let's work from there. And I think it's really interesting because in, in all organizations, what really surprises me is culture is based on behavior mm. and it's set at the top table. So, you know, if you have a group of senior leaders who aren't interested or aren't aware of the need to pivot and really subscribe to a agreed set of behaviors, your culture probably isn't, is not only gonna get so, so far. And I think the example that I always use I was with with people, you know, every single one of us as a child had a teacher at school who really got us, who really connected with us, who saw us beyond just the people in the class. They saw who we were, they saw our potential. And as a result of that, we did our best work. We did, you know, we probably got our best results for those teachers. And for me, leadership is like that. Leadership is a privilege. It's not something that should be taken for granted. And I think a lot of the time it's very easy to fall into the trap of forgetting that. The more senior you become, the more privileged you are, the more, the further from the reality and the the kind of the, you know, the, the, the grassroots you are of an organization. And, you know, we all need to be inspired. inspiration for me is is what leadership's about if you're not going to work to inspire people every day if you're not going to work to make a difference to connect to be human to understand the people that you're working for to really know who they are to understand you know that's what i loved about lockdown i thought lockdown was fantastic because we'd always subscribe to this really outdated kind of ideology that you know work life was here and home life was there and then all of a sudden we saw people in their own home we saw what the front room was decorated we met the partners we met the dogs we met the cats and then all of a sudden everybody became three dimensional again and I I actually thought that was one of the real silver linings that came out of lockdown where we were allowed to just be human again and I thought it's great and the suits are all in the back of the wardrobe nobody's wearing those anymore I think it's fantastic.
0: That is such a fantastic call out. I have, I have not thought about it the way, and you're right, it did become a lot more personalized. We learned a lot more about what yeah. people were like at home, and I do think that's a really big silver lining. There's something you said there that's really interesting to me, and I think this is one of the you know, inefficiencies of life that I've noticed, okay? So I, I'll use the example you used of, of both a teacher, but also you know, in, in America, my, my kids, I'm running them around on weekends. I got four kids. I'm running them around for cheer competitions, soccer, all these different things, and there's there's two things I've noticed, right? One is, my kid's love of a certain sport is absolutely tied to the coach that believed in them, that gave them an opportunity. I'll give you an example. My daughter, when she was really young, was really good at scoring goals. And then as she progressed up, she got onto a team that was mixed boys and girls. And this is about like six, seven years old. And the coach, he put all the really talented boys up front so they would score a lot of goals and he put my daughter back on defense, even though she had shown a real natural talent in this space. And this guy was just obsessed with winning the games. So he would just keep putting these boys up front, they would score all these goals, and meanwhile, my daughter started to lose her love for soccer. And I always look back at that and I say, my goodness, at such a formative time, she could have taken something and gone really far with it, but she had a coach that didn't that didn't embolden her or enable her to have success. And then I look back at my, my own schooling career. It's funny because I love politics. I had an amazing political science teacher in, in university. I love philosophy. I had an amazing philosophy teacher in university. My Indian mom is probably upset that I didn't have an amazing math or science teacher that, and led me to where I'm. <laughs> Matt. so it's just so funny how you're right the leadership and the people in place whether we want it or not yeah. really sets our destiny sets our journey in how we feel so I think it's just a great call out by you
1: yeah I I, I, I it's interesting isn't it I think it, it's so important those those decisions the wrong decisions that can be made about people and then the realization of how that impacts their future how it impacts how they experience work I mean we know don't we that 70% of of people leave organisations because of bad levers, It's not because they're not paid enough money. It's not because the development opportunities aren't there. It's because of their manager. So, you know, if, if I found that a lot of the work that I, you know, the, the heartland for me and the people and culture work, if you really want to, you know, you want to drive a great culture and you really want to bring that to life, whilst what the C-suite does is really important because that sets the tone and the mood, your heartland for me is always your frontline managers. If Mm. you really engage them in the art of human leadership of how they connect with their people, how they motivate them, how they understand them, how they play to their strengths, that's how I accelerate culture in an organisation. I think
0: that's awesome. One one of the things that we joke around here at MSH is we hire a lot of people fresh out of school. And we always say, we're going to ruin you for every other company. We hope that you stay here for 10, 20 years. But if you don't, we want you to feel and look back and be like, oh, man, it was really different there. I I really was empowered and enabled and cared about in a way that I haven't felt in my career since. And that's something that we take super, super seriously. So I'd love to hear that. I'm not going to let you give Shell as an answer. But you got to tell me what the best culture you've been a part of is outside of Shell. (laughs)
1: You know what? I, I'd, I worked for this fantastic CEO who I'd worked for in a much larger organisation. It was Aviva, actually. And he went to do his first CEO role in a not-for-profit. It was a bit of a risk for him, and but he was really people-orientated. So the people agenda, how people felt when they walked through the front door every day, that was really important to him. So I knew, I think the sweet spot always for someone like me, if I'm, whether I'm a consultant or whether I'm doing a role on a permanent basis, is... A CEO who really gets the people agenda. They've got to. They've got to live it. They've got to breathe it. It's got to be authentic because people. People feel it if it's not. So we. We had this wild idea that we were going to take this little organisation that was really old-fashioned, very traditional, unknown, and we. And it was during lockdown, and we created probably well. It, this was where I won. Where my kind of award started, and it was this piece of work that we did in this particular organization called MIB. It was a not-for-profit, as I said. And we took a little organization that had never been heard of and we put it on the map and people were writing about the culture that we created. They were talking about it. White papers were written on it because, and that's what I'm most proud of. It was the opportunity to work with a new executive committee, a new CEO, and create something absolutely amazing for those people in the organization. And actually we worked with them to create culture that they wanted we defined it we asked them what they wanted what's it going to feel like what is leadership going to be like in this organization we did all of that and during lockdown um when all of us were kind of scrambling around wondering you know how are we going to how are we going to actually deal with lockdown how are we going to keep a whole organization motivated how are we going to stay connected with our people and we had a really simple idea we had two bags of seeds and we sent out goodie bags to everybody in the organization through the post Um, And it had two packets of seed seeds, lettuce seeds or radish seeds. And the idea, the metaphor was just like great culture. You know, it takes seeds, take love, they take energy, they take light. And then what we had was the whole and this is what went viral on LinkedIn. We had the whole organisation go out into the garden, including members of the board. We had the chair of the remuneration committee, everyone taking photographs of all of these seeds that they planted. And then over time, they took photographs of of obviously how the seeds were growing, how they were doing, all of this type of thing. It was just a a really silly, fun idea of how to keep an organisation engaged during a really dark period of time for lots of people and a bit of fun. And, And it was, you know, we sent all of this really cool stuff out to them at home. Um, And and that that was kind of the start of something really special. And it was really nice for the for the people that worked there, because for a lot of them, this was an organization that no one had ever heard of. They didn't know who MIB was. They didn't know about our culture. And it just kind of went viral. It was it was really cool to be part of that. A real privilege to have kind of thought about it and kind of got something going.
0: Sounds incredible. All right. So I got to ask yeah, you. It yeah, it sounds amazing. So I got to ask you, like people are bringing you in typically though. I mean, it's great to build something from the ground up or step into a well-oiled machine like it sounds like a shell, but I got to imagine you've walked into some very much needed turnaround situation. So is there a yeah. cultural turnaround you've come in that you're most proud of? Like kind of explain what it was before and what you did to kind of get it to a better place.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think i think every time you start a piece of work like this and i think now now i'm older and now i'm kind of more selective about who i work with um i will only take on work probably where people are really committed to wanting to create a great culture you know and it's usually entrepreneurs like you and you know starter founder ceos who really want to create a legacy and something special i think it's really much more difficult when you are in an organization you're part of the system to rethink things and innovate from internal because you're institutionalized, you used to have things have always been done. And that's why, you know, sometimes it's it's, it's easier to disrupt from the outside. So I think um, I've had, so I did some work, funny enough, in private equity, where typically you would expect that culture really wasn't a, you know, it wasn't necessarily a value driver. Um, and in this particular organization, we did a lot of really, really great stuff. And we really got a, you know, quite a traditional, failing payday lender into a place where we really energized all of the people in the organization, and we took it from something very traditional, very staid, to be much more people focused, much more customer centric. And we actually spent time, you know, with our frontline managers, really understand getting them close to our customers. You know, if, if you want to be great in an organization, you want to have a great culture. You've got to start with understanding what your customers want. And so that was probably a good example of something that I was proud of and probably surprised about how far you can push it. And I think what was really nice for me in that experience was to also kind of realise that if you've got the right alignment around the top table and you've got the right level of aspiration and people are open to really challenging their own kind of predetermined ideas of what could looks like, the value of culture, how organizations should be run, how work gets done, you can create anything. So I think that that was nice for me because I think you always have an idea, don't you? Of certain environments where you think, oh, okay, well, we'll take it to number five out of 10. Here we'll be able to take it to eight out of 10. Um, and that was a, that was a, a nice surprise.
0: Yeah, listen, our company's been lucky enough to work with some well-recognized private equity firms over the last 10 years. And I'll tell you what, there are some that are very much exactly what you would think in terms of you know ones and zeros are the, are the most important uh, de- denominator. And then there's others that I see take a very large people focus. And I got to be honest, they're very successful, right? They understand the bottom line impact of the people, how you manage attrition, engagement, productivity, all these things are all people-based, cultural-based, how you treat your people. Organizations And at the private equity firms that I've seen that have been the most successful, the ones that we love working with the most are the ones that get that.
1: Absolutely spot on. And I think, you know, it's probably the, the, the advanced PE firms probably three to five years ago, all of a sudden realized that there's a real commercial re- return on investment on culture. It's got a real commercial value. I mean, we know that organizations that invest in the culture outperform the competitors by 30%. That's a That's a real statistic. So obviously, if you're working in private equity, all of a sudden, you know, they used to send me in to do the kind of the assessment on the organisations we were buying to say, OK, well, what's the leadership team like that we're buying? Are they fit for purpose? Are they going to fit with our culture? Are they going to, you know, they're going to work well under pressure, for example, all of those types of things. So really, really interesting work. But yeah, it's nice. It's nice to see more traditional areas of, you know, business really come to the table and really understand the value of culture, because, you know, all of us want to go to work in a place that we love we want to work for inspirational people that's that's not something that a few of us want i would say that most people want that and if you get that right i mean it's it's, it's magic
0: 100% and Jordan, i'm going to run something by you i've been saying this for about 10 years and and, and i want to get your thoughts on it i i i've told our team you know when you look at organizations and kind of succession plan of most organizations. You know, when I was growing up, it was always the CFO and the COO were always the ones tapped on the shoulder, that if, you know, the proverbial bus hit the CEO, that's who was stepping into that role, right? And it makes sense, they understand the numbers of the business, they understand how the business works. And then what we've seen over the last 10 years change a little bit is the importance and proliferation of technology. And now you're starting to see yeah. a lot of chief technology officers, people who are leading product, right, stepping into those roles. I'll know, and one of the reasons I wanted to get into this industry back in 2007 is that I felt like I knew a secret. I felt like I knew that there was a bottom line financial impact that wasn't fully understood. People analytics is not something that has still is not as mature as it's gonna be in the coming future, and people don't always recognize the importance of taking care of the people, putting a people strategy in place that empowers your business going forward. We're seeing it in the US now when you have quarterly financial calls on Wall Street, they're not just bringing the COO, CFO and CEO in anymore. They're starting to bring in the chief people officer, they're bringing in the chief human resources officer to speak against important data points like attrition and tenure, engagement and all these things because people are understanding that if you're trying to forecast the business going forward, how you're doing on the people aspect of your business is a really good indicator of where it is going forward. And so I think the next phase is and you tell me this Jordan if you believe this, I, I don't see a ton of it, a little bit of it, but I think the chief people officer stepping into that CEO role and that being a more common occurrence in Fortune 500, Fortune 1000, Global 1000 companies is gonna be something that I think in the very new f- future we're going to see a lot more of because everything I've ever heard described about successful CEOs is understanding the vision, communicating that vision, working with their people, building their people, developing their people, keeping their people in the organization, and innovating, right? and so. Those are all things that if you have a great chief people officer or chief human resources officer, that's going to be something that they can do in spades. What's your take on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think let's be really clear. It's it's quite funny. I was having a conversation with a headhunter last week, um, challenging their ideologies about the competencies that they assess CHROs on versus CFOs. So for example, you know, one of the conversations we had was... I'd said, well, why why are you applying this type of assessment to a CHRO role when essentially that's what you'd be applying to a CFO? Because you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't do the inverse. You you wouldn't apply the same methodology that you would assess a CHRO for a it's because it's completely different. And actually, it's the combination of those two roles for me with a CEO that makes the magic. I think... Increasingly, I think to be capable and credible in an organization as a senior HR person, you have to be able to do the numbers. You have to be able to do the PL, you have to go to the board events, you have to be able to speak to investors. That's an absolute prerequisite for me. So I think on the proviso that you've got those skills, I think absolutely, because if you look at some of the most, you know, the most revered and successful and well-known CEOs that we all love and we all know about, they are great people 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 they are great people leaders they can connect with people they understand people they can tell a story that gets people tuned in to what they're saying to their vision to their strategy it's really really important so I would love to see that I think also there's a really interesting point for me on what you said on the the kind of the generational expectations so what we're seeing for me the biggest void that I think that we have right now is the fact that you know, if you think about the, the, the next generations, the Z's and the A's, they are more diverse, more connected than any generation we've ever seen. Yet our ability to really understand them in order to attract them, in order to design an employee value proposition that actually excites them, that makes them want to come and work in your organisation, is something that we've not really tackled yet. And I'm really kind of, a lot of the stuff that I'm doing at the moment is really ha- thinking and trying to future-proof organisations based on that gap. Because if we can't connect with those people, I mean, if you think about it, they're not going to have enough money to buy their own homes. They're worried about the state of the world that they're going to inherit after, you know, we finished doing our stuff with it. And and therefore we really need to get into the psychology of that generation if we're going to really attract them. And we know, don't we, that they're not going to work for people. I mean, when you and I were probably, you know, uh, working our way up through organizations, when the most senior person came into the room, everyone else was quiet Mm -hmm. because it was just, oh, okay it was but th- those days are done now they want people that that know them that connect with them that are human that are funny it's those so their expectation of what good leadership looks like is also very different and we need to pivot i think on that basis
0: i think it's spot on it's something that either intentionally or unintentionally here at our company we've worked really hard at because we're bringing in people and we know that they have different expectations and i really take exception to when people make large generalizations about different generations. There are def- definitely different ways of working and different expectations, there's no question about that. But quite frankly, what matters to a Gen Z, right? Purpose, investment, development, feeling valued, doing work that they believe in that they're challenged by, that's also the same thing with Gen X and baby boomers too. It's just, it's di- we're coming into a different world where the, 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 the acumen with technology, the world that we're working in and our awareness of what's going on, the globalization, these are the different things that come into impact, but the purpose and how you get the most out of people, to me, that hasn't changed a ton, although people are much more out in front and much more intentional and knowledgeable about what it is they
1: want. Yeah. And I think their expectations are much clearer As a result of that, but I agree with you. I think the purpose thing is so important. What is your organization purpose? Why do you want to join there? What's it doing to society? You know, what are your ESG targets? How are you making, bringing that to life? You know, all of that type of stuff is really important. I think it's, it's nice because I think when, I think great things happen when things get broken and things change.
0: Totally agree. I love that. All right, so listen, we're gonna take this in a little bit of a different direction. We're gonna to get to our hiring questions for all those all those waiting, but we're gonna do a little bit of, a, we talk about our culture here at MSH. We have one of the foremost culture thought leaders here in our presence. So we're gonna take an example to get our own feedback or really kind of test what we're at. So we're, I'm gonna give you the floor right now. I'm gonna be Azra Rashid CEO and founder of MSH and Aon. And I want you to dive in with me and kind of assess where our company's at, where I'm at as a leader from a cultural perspective.
1: So we've talked so yeah sure no problem more than happy to do that and I think you know you and I started today's pod with talking about you know culture is hard because culture is based on behavior so I guess I'm guessing when I work with most kind of founder CEOs like you where part of the biggest privilege and opportunity was going off by themselves enabled them to actually create their own culture. And I'm guessing for you, Oz, you were kind of in that camp as well. One of the biggest draws for you, having worked for years in corporate was, you know, if I set up by myself, I'll also be able to create my own culture that I'm proud of, that I stand in front of. So um, I guess where I'd start with you is if you talk me through your vision before you started the business, what did did your culture look and feel like
0: to you? Great question. So... I can think back through a lot of things throughout my career that really stuck out to me is what I didn't like and what I wanted to be different when I started my own company. One thing I think about was I was working in a large Fortune 500 company and my ability to grow because there was just so many people, even though I was busting my butt and coming in at 7 a.m. and leaving at 8 p.m. and taking on a bunch of work that I didn't need to, was incremental. Yeah. And I found that I was very motivated by impact. And I felt like one of the things that was really tough for me is that I felt like the company could replace me at a given moment. If I was out for two weeks, nothing would change. And that was something that kind of drove me nuts. And so like, I wanted to feel like I had more of an impact. So that was something that was really important to me. And I wanted there to be incentive that if I put in the work and my peers weren't, that I'd be able to, it'd be a meritocracy, that I'd be able to grow. Another thing that I remember is you know, when I first got into the recruiting side and the executive search side, the guy I worked for, he wasn't very nice to me at the beginning. And then I started closing some deals And he was really nice to me and like buying me suits and doing all types of great stuff for me. And then I had a bad run and he started treating me bad again. So that was something that really stood out to me. I made sure that I didn't want to be treating people or have people treated just based on their production that didn't make a lot of sense to me um, I had things where I wasn't treated as the whole person right they were only looking at me as what I could do for them and that stood out to me as something that I didn't want um, I'm really big on growth mindset so like for me I'm not ready to be the CEO of a billion dollar company today but by the time we get to a billion dollars you better believe that I've learned and done and gone through enough failure and experience to be ready for that moment so that's another major tenant right um, the managers and me- mentors I've had in my career those are the jobs that I was most engaged in and so building a culture of great management and leadership was super important to me. And then lastly, one thing that's always been super important to me is my word. When I say something, I want people to know that they can rely on me, right? And so I've always had this thing that I call my say-do ratio. How often do I say something and I'm able to follow through with that, whether it be for a friend, my wife, my kids, my employees, whatever it may be, it's really, my word is really important to me. And so that level of accountability, right, and knowing what I can get done and being able to to do everything I can to make that happen has been super important to me. And I'll, I'll throw one more in there. Accountability. So when things go wrong, right, we can blame yeah. everything else around us, right? And I've seen situations where I've had people I worked with as coworkers or managers who, when the you know what hit the fan, they were blaming the market, the circumstances, this, employed that, and that never made any sense to me. I've always said, what's in my control, and why don't I look at what I could have made better, be accountable to that. And how can I get better going forward? Because that's really how things are going to improve. So those are some tenets of things that I saw throughout my career. That were really I love able-
1: that. That is that is absolute music to my ears. Because if, if a CEO can, you know, if integrity about sticking and, and delivering on the stuff that you promise, that's so important to people. So important. You'd be shocked at the amount of CEOs that don't do that, which is part of yeah. the problem. Love so that, that's wonderful. And the fact that also you are, Self-aware enough to know that where you are now and the preparation that you make to be a CEO of a billion-dollar organization—that's also great because the best leaders I've worked for are the most self-aware. So the best leaders in the world are those that are really, really clear on what they're really good at, and then they then design and build a team around them of the areas that are not not—they're not great at—and they're actually comfortable to admit what they're not great at. You know, I mean, we've all got that, haven't we? I guess the other thing was on my mind. What I'd really love to hear from you about was. If you were to describe the culture um, of MSH in one sentence, what would that be for you?
0: I would say that if I'm describing the culture of MSH in one sentence, it would be people are our purpose. We are a people-based organization that builds technology, provides wonderful services, that seeks to wow our customers. And because we're focused on the people aspect of all of that, how do we attract the best people to our organization? How do we develop our people? How do we make sure we retain these people? How do we empower them and make sure that not only do we have the right people, but we have them on the right seats on the bus? That's all people-centric to me. And so all the other things that come as a byproduct of that are, are centered around this People are our purpose and taking care of people and developing people and growing people and holding people to their highest bar of standard are how we're going to get the best results. And so that's the way I describe our
1: culture. I love that. I absolutely love that. And what for you, what were the non-negotiable behaviors of your people? What yeah, would you so
0: We have to have... I believe that if you're put into any type of leadership role or you're in any type of customer facing role that that's a privilege and you have to treat it that way and you have to honor it that way. So a high sense of urgency, a high sense of reliability are really key. Obviously, you can't you can't be somebody that's disingenuous, inauthentic or that tells falsehoods. That won't work. Not only does that make you somebody we can't trust, but when we're trying to move quickly, we're trying to grow a company I have to be able to take you at your word and you have to be able to clear communicate uh, communicate clearly so that we can move at that type of speed. so that's another really big non-negotiable We have to be able to re- not just trust your word that's that's a cost of admission We have to be able to rely on your word okay you also have to believe and it goes back to what I talked about with growth mindset that we're constantly learning and getting better right We never lose. We win or we learn. There's gonna be times where we win, but there's gonna be times where we don't win. What are we taking away from that for the next opportunity to be better? So if you have this mindset that your intelligence is static and you are who you are and that you can't improve or the people around you can't improve, then you're not gonna be able to work here, right? Another big thing is, a lot of times in our industry what we see is people are very cutthroat, right? You, like, they, they look at this as a zero-sum game, and so, For me to succeed, somebody else has to fail, and we don't look at it that way. We are really big, and you were talking about some of those rituals, and we do a lot of these things. We're really big on celebrating each other's success as much as possible, whether it be deals, uh, awards, Uh, birthdays, anniversaries, whatever it is, we're constantly going out of our way to shout out, not just me, but everybody in the organization. We do this thing called recognition on Monday mornings where we're shouting out people from the week before, how did they help us succeed, and what value would we attribute to them of our eight values. And so for us, you have to be able to celebrate others. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't have your own internal competitiveness. That doesn't mean when, when, when Susie has a great win, You're patting Susie on the back authentically and saying, amazing job, but you're also thinking, ooh, now I wanna get on the board. Now I wanna show what I can do. That is how we maintain a ability of high performance, but also being an organization where people feel good about the people they work with and feel like the people around them are lifting them up. And then I think the last thing is, and this is the one that I've had to work the most on, for our company is you have to be able to do your best work here at MSH. It's great if you feel safe and secure. It's great if you feel valued. It's great if we offer you an amazing work-life integration, work-life balance, whatever you wanna talk about. We pay you at the top of the market, whatever it is. All those things are super important. But if you cannot do your best work at this company, then the company will not achieve its p- potential. It will not be successful. And that's, I think, the tough thing because when you hear a lot about culture and you read a lot of these books and things like that, it focuses on very important things around making people feel safe, secure, do their best work, feel valued, of course. But at the same time, you know, people use the term family a lot in organizations and I don't buy that, I don't like that because at the end of the day, the family, you gotta kinda put up with your family, good or bad, right? For, for the most <laughs> cases, right? Yeah. All, we yeah. are a high-performing team. We are trying to achieve big goals and you have to be helping us achieve those goals. Not every day. Everyone has bad days, bad weeks, bad things. We get that. But more often than not, we need to be able to count on you to do your best work to help us achieve our goals because that's really why we're here too because we, our work is our identity. It gives us purpose and we want to be part of something big. We hold ourselves to that standard. We hold each other to that
1: standard. And what is the one thing that you're going to commit to changing in terms of your leadership style to make your culture even better?
0: I love that you asked that. So what we've done is We've done an amazing job of organically growing people in our organization, right, who have become fantastic leaders for us. But there is a limit to that because they they only know our company, right, and they only know our way, which our way is great, our culture is great, but bringing out outside experience, outside diversity is really, really important too. And so what I've done over the last few years is I've supplemented a lot of that great organic growth with leaders who came with outside experiences, outside industries, outside organizations, and quite frankly, you know, I'm a little bit, you know, it's it, it's always been difficult for me because when we bring people into the organization, I look at them as they're investing in me. They're investing in us. Yeah, and so absolutely. I'm usually like the type of person that will say, well, listen, if somebody's not working out, one of two things happen. I say this to our managers all the time. Either you hired wrong or we're not managing them effectively. Again, that goes back to that accountability. At the same yeah. time, right, I probably look back in history and say, you know what, I probably kept that person longer than I should have, or I probably gave too many allowances to that person, and it didn't end up working out, or it ended up biting us in the butt. And so one thing I want to do better going forward is that lasting, people doing their best work here and holding a high performance bar. It's great to be at a company that you feel respected and loved and valued, but also you have to be pushed to do your best work. Otherwise, it's incongruent. You can't sustain that over time. And that's something that I want to be better about
1: yeah and I love that I so that's a really good answer and I think also you know I mean I actively encourage people that work for me to do at least two interviews a year externally even if nothing more than to confirm that where they are is the right choice and that they appreciate it I think it's really interesting because you were talking about people in your organization obviously a lot of them have worked just for you and actually part of part of the privilege always I think is to learn and you know learn your craft in an organization that really feels feels like home you can be yourself there but actually also successful CEOs are really quite often saying you know what and and now might be your time to go somewhere else but you're always welcome to come back because like you're saying they might want to go off and kind of experience a different organization and that's part of their development is part of their own journey but also the idea that they can come back to MSH later when they've done all of that stuff and then bring the next kind of you know the next raft of skills expertise ideas innovations really important and i think you know talent is cyclical isn't it and you know this probably better than i do with what you do the whole idea that this it's just it's just a cycle and it's great that people feel that and i always actively do that when i'm in an organization make sure that the best people know that when it's time to go it's okay to have that conversation but we really want to come, want you to come back when you're ready
0: yeah, I love that, and listen, I've tried to do what I can to supplement some of that external development and external people, but you're right, there is some level of, sometimes the grass isn't always greener, sometimes it is, but sometimes you need to go experience that and understand that, and I think that's a, a really powerful thing. I think for our organ, the other thing about it, and this is the, the reality of it as a leader of the company, is sometimes the people that got you here are not the people to get you there too, right? And so there's some level of the, there has to be that churn for the company too. So I think it's a very healthy thing. I have, you know, people that have been with us for a very long time that I hope are with us for a very long time in the future, but I'm gonna do everything I can to help enable and empower them to get the experience they need to be ready to take those steps up. And I'm gonna continue to look outside of our organization and I think that we have a brand and an offering and a purpose that really attracts people to wanna to come work for us. Now we gotta yeah. take advantage of that. So I think it's a mix of, you know, keeping continuity and keeping people that have been there, done that, and helped that, but supplementing that, and then to your point, there's always gonna be natural cycles to it, and I gotta be honest, that's something that was hard for me to to learn in the first few years of the business, that it's hard not to take it personally, right? And so, but you see, you're right, I've had people go and come back, we've had situations that, you know what, that was actually for the best when they left, and so you learn to make it work. And so these are the type of things when you're dealing with people, people have different wants, different needs, and that can change, year to year, moment to moment, time to time. And so sometimes the person you hired in 2014 is a completely different person in 2018, 2020, whatever it may be, and that's normal. So I think that's a really big thing that I've had to learn and kind of get adjusted to. And I hope as we go forward, it'll be something that makes our business even more successful.
1: Yeah, and and the great thing about your business as well as it continues to grow, you know, and you're great. And this is one of the things I love about working in startups. There is so much to learn. And so much going on, if you can keep your workforce plugged into that and alive to the opportunities and taking opportunities to really stretch their understanding of certain things, really develop their skill set, there's so much to go at. But like you say, you know, the tough part of being a CEO like you is that you get to a certain point when your strategy evolves. And it's always going to be evolving as you grow that, you know, sometimes you also make have to make the difficult decision that certain people aren't growing at the rate of your strategy in your organization. And that's okay. You know, but that's the tough part. That's the downside of being a CEO, and sure. you have to make those types. You know, but that's that's just how it is, isn't
0: it? I asked for this life, so you got to take the good with the bad. I'm a big believer <laughs> in that. All right, so listen, I wanna, I wanna. No, did I check any boxes? How was the assessment? How did it come out? That any was good for me. Yeah, good. Good. All right, good. You're gonna wanna come work here. I'll send you an application. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Let's move on to the hiring questions. All right, Jordan, I wanna ask you. Now, I've got. I know you're gonna have some great answers to this, so I wanna start here. Do you have an overall hiring philosophy for people you bring in your team? What is your philosophy when it comes to bringing people into your team?
1: Yeah, so I, so look, I'm really, really focused on diversity. So I think I remember that the best teams that I've been a part of um, have been the most diverse and I'm I'm actively all about that. And I'm not just talking about the, the diversity that we see. I'm talking about diversity of thought. Every single time you go into an organization that really is struggling to evolve, it's all because there's this likeness to me effect where everybody's the same, everybody thinks the same, everybody hires in the same image. And it it's just that's a dying, that's that, that's a dying breed, I think, of leadership. And that's you know, that that's not going to get you anywhere. I think for me, it's about I want to be inspired by the people that I hire. That's really important to me. So I'm never threatened or You know, I I actively seek people who know more than me in certain areas, people that are going to make me laugh, people, you know, fun is a big thing for me at work. And I think we don't spend enough time really acknowledging that. I think everybody that loves going to work has fun at work. They're working with people that they have a great, and that, that for me is so important. And also, you know, the unique kind of technical skills is really important as well, because again, as we were talking about before, I'm really aware, I'm very cognizant of what I'm brilliant at as a leader, but well, then I also I'm also aware of the stuff that I'm not that great at. So therefore, I make sure that when I'm hiring a team of people, particularly at a senior level, that those people have really, you know, they're going to have the skills the skill set and the diversity to really cover that off for me. So that's really important. Um, and I like I like people that are going to challenge me. Mm. So I think far too often for me in organizations where things go wrong, there is a lack of appetite at the top. For people challenging them, because ego gets in the way, privilege, status, all of those types of things. I act- actively seek counsel and feedback and input from the people that work for me. I want them to feel part of something. It's not just that they turn up and I tell them what to do. So I want people that are really going to disrupt. They're going to be effective and they're going to make a difference. And I want people to be passionate. I the, the, one of the key things for me when I'm designing a vision and a strategy is I want to be absolutely clear and confident that every single person around my top table has the capability to sell that vision in a way that really excites people. And -hmm. particularly when you work in a people function, so important. I love that.
0: All right. So I want to take the next question here in terms of favorite questions in an interview, but here's how I'm going to ask it. You've talked a lot about self-awareness and you've talked a lot about people challenging you how do you determine that interview? What do you ask to kind of determine those two very, I think, difficult things to do in a 30, 40 minute interview,
1: right? Yeah, so I, I often ask candidates, you know, tell me about the most difficult conversation you've just had with your manager and how you challenge them and how you change their way of thinking on a certain point. So that's mm. really, really important to me. Love so that. you know, their, their ability to demonstrate that they are comfortable to go into bat with the person that they're working for. Because for me, if you're really good at your job, and you can say you can have any conversation at all as long as it's said in the right way. I think that's the key. And good leaders are really good at having those conversations, regardless of what level they are, who they're reporting to. Your ability to influence your manager is really important. I think.
0: Yeah, I, and I've said this to people before. There is you can say pretty much anything you want, and there's a right way and a wrong way, right? Somebody comes in late to a meeting and you stamp the table and say you're wasting everybody's time, you're selfish, you know, that person's probably not going to hear the message, they're going to hear the tone and the way that you embarrass them. But if you pull them aside and say, "Hey, listen, when you do this, it makes us feel like we can't get started on time. Please just communicate XYZ," and you make it about, you know, the actual situation rather than how they feel, then you're going to be able to get the outcome you want. Sometimes I feel like we when we're giving feedback or we're upset about something, it's less about the outcome we want and more about the venting or our ego or getting something off our chest. You've got to stop and think through, how am I communicating this and what do I want out of this? And that's a really important aspect of any leader. What, what about self-awareness? How do, you, how do you determine self-awareness in an interview?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good one, isn't it? Because I think, I mean, one of the things I really like to ask senior leaders is um, tell me about the most challenging piece of feedback that you've received over the last six months and what you've done as a result of that. Because for me, that really, if someone can really sit there in an interview process when you're the CPO of a FTSE 100 organisation and be really honest about, okay, actually, the feedback I received was X, Y, and Z. I mean, the depth of the feedback is a good indication of how comfortable they are to admit that they that they do have failings. And I always see that as a positive. Um, and then also the detail that they provide in the answer around how they've actually, what they've heard, what the feedback's been, and what they've done as a result of it. Because, To me as well, you want someone to demonstrate that not only are they self-aware enough to hear the feedback, but that they've actually done something about it. And also another question for me is kind of, you know, tell me, tell me about a time where you've experienced a situation that has really crossed your value set. Mm. And explain to me how you've really overcome that and what conversation you've had as a result of that, because that as well, it's also playing into the integrity space. Love that.
0: I love that. Those are really good questions. I'll give you one that I recently learned about a few months ago yeah, and I've cool. been using it in all my interviews and I, and I really love it around self-awareness because I agree with you. I think it's one of the key aspects to work at MSH and be a leader here. Um, and I've said it on another podcast. So I'm going to repeat myself, but bear with me. Um, <laughs> tell me the biggest misconception people have about you and who the real you is. And so everybody's got an answer for that, I found, right? Everybody's like, oh, people think that I'm really mean or people think that, um, you know, I'm I'm, I'm I'm an introvert or people think that X, Y, Z. And so, and then it's like, well, tell me what the real you is. And so this gives me a, a glimpse into how the world views them and then what they think the real answer is and why they, they might be getting a raw deal or it's a, it's a falsehood.
1: Yeah, I love that, Oz, because I think as well, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm sure when you're asking conversation you know when you, you when you're conducting an interview and you're hiring people that are you know especially in an organization your size every single person that you hire makes a difference to your business in a large organization you can have a couple of underperformers you don't feel people that are behaving as badly you know because there's so many people so it's easier to absorb that so I always really like to ask questions as well about you know I like to ask questions that are really left field in an interview that really, you know, to see how people perform on their feet. feet. Things like, you know, what's the kindest thing you've done in the last six months? Mm. And people are like, oh, and they're, you know, they're a bit, bit shocked. And then they kind of, you see, that, and, and I like to see how they go through that. How comfortable are they with me as someone that they haven't met before, being vulnerable, exposing the real them, you know, and also um, what else? There's a couple of others that I like to. Oh, so if you could have been anything in the world, <laughs> What would you have been and why? Because I think also it gives you a really, a real good idea and a sense of someone about what their aspirations were, who they were as a kid, you know, and why didn't you do that? Because yeah. I think all of us. I mean, I remember I, I, we had this fantastic headmaster at school, and he used to. He was one of the best storytellers ever, and he used to tell fantastic stories. And he said to us on our last assembly, and I'll never forget it. It was one of those things that you and I were talking about before about that teacher that really got you. And he said, I don't want any of you. And he referred to us as as his children. He was a Jewish guy. He was a fantastic headmaster. And he said, don't go and be really good at what you're second best at. Be really clear on what your dream is and go and do that. Mm. Because for most of us, most people end up being quite often, and I find this in the work that I do, particularly the one-on-one stuff with CEOs, that a lot of people have ended up being really good at what they were second best at, because the fear of failure is huge amongst all of us. All of us have got one of those little voices in the back of, our oh, I don't know if I should, uh, maybe I shouldn't have said this, uh, you know, th- those types of things. So I love to ask questions like that in an interview process, because I like people to see how they adapt to being Thinking on the feet, but also.
0: Yeah. And you get, sometimes you get through the manufacturing press of an interview and you're used to tell me about, you know, your weaknesses. Tell me about that. And so, like, you get them to think in a different way and put them in a different spot. I really love that. Let me ask you about this. If I ask you to tell me about a memorable interview, good or bad, don't have to name names, what comes to mind? What's the, maybe you were interviewing, maybe you were interviewing someone.
1: (laughs) I remember, um, it was actually an interview after I'd finished Shell. So obviously, I was, I was probably quite, institutionalized and very wedded to what good looked like having worked in for seven years in an organization like that and I was dipping my toe into the water thinking about you know and it was actually in a bank a really famous bank an investment bank that I went for an interview for and the lady was late for the interview so she was very senior and she didn't look at me when she came into the room and the first thing she said to me was so look, I haven't got a lot of time. So let's start. I want to know why you want to come and work for me. And I don't know. Maybe you know. I look back now, and i I was quite I was quite cocky when I was younger, and I was quite you know I I kind of had a I always had a real sense of right and wrong, and where I would be placed well in an organisation that matched my values. So my response was, Well, I'm not sure I do yet to be honest, because I don't know anything about the organisation. I don't know anything about you. And I thought the whole point of this process was that, you know, we'd have a conversation about also what might be in it for me. And actually, in the end, the interview was so bad that I, I finished the interview and I didn't I just and I was really young. And afterwards, I thought, God, that was so rude. I can't believe I did that. But I stood up and I said, I'm going to be really honest with you that this interview process really isn't working for me and if this is an example of of how you inspire the next generation to come into your organization I, I don't think i can subscribe to this the values are really clear to me and i left the interview and afterwards i remember sitting and i didn't have another job offer at the time and i remember sitting on the tube going home thinking what have you done why have you done that? <laughs> why, have you, you know, why?" you know have now
0: been- that you dodged yeah. a bullet though right
1: what how did she respond yeah. She, she didn't know what to say. She was clearly no one had ever given her any feedback at all because she was so senior. Oh. Um, and I think so immured to this kind of you know, anything being a two-way street. And I just thought, I can't do this. I can't, I can't work in an organization like this when I've had this fantastic experience beforehand, which really set a high benchmark. And I'm glad I'm glad it did because it made me really clear as well on what my non-negotiables were, even when I was young, about the kind of organization I wanted to work in. So yeah. So that, that was probably the, the most memorable interview because it was so terrible. Listen, if you
0: had just tried to get the job, which I'm sure you could have if you wanted to, you might have gone on a completely different trajectory. Maybe you're like investment banking now and uh, advising <laughs> instead of culture and HR. So I think you did the right thing. Let me ask you about. So we just talked about candidate experience. How do you create kind of a unique candidate experience or like a realistic job preview for people that you're interviewing to come into your organization
1: or team? So, look, I think I've worked in all types of organisations, so I'm really candid with all candidates that I interview with what they're really stepping into. I think the worst thing for any candidate is to turn up for an interview, be sold this fantastic dream and then arrive on the first day and think, oh, my God, this is nothing like I envisaged. So for me, I am really honest about where we are as an organization. I can talk very comfortably about the stuff that's going really well, but also about the stuff that's not going well, about the aspirations around things that we're gonna change. And I think candidate experience for me, I had this fantastic lady that worked for me in one of, one of the organizations. He was one of the best recruiters ever. And she delivered this candidate experience that really put most organizations to shame. She was ruthless with with our recruitment partners so she all of our agencies were really clear on how to sell the story she made sure that every candidate had feedback that day from line managers so she was really holding our line managers to account in the business around I want really constructive really factual feedback on everyone and I think for me Oz the litmus test for me of a great candidate experience is whether you get the job or you don't go and talk about that experience in the external market really positively because for me the recruitment arm of an organization other than your kind of you know other than kind of sales and stuff like that it's the first point of contact with your brand it's so important to get that right you want every single person every line manager selling the dream you know turning up asking great questions it needs to be a tough process because we know don't we that really good candidates want to feel like they've really earned the privilege and the opportunity of working there which i i think is really important i know you know that the 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 roles that i have really felt proud of getting have been really tough interview processes where i've gone through assessments where i've met various different people and i think also um It's the speed and the transparency. So, I remember in my last role that I've just left, I had a number of offers on the table. But the fact that the CEO got me through to to meet every single person that I needed to meet in a two week period and then got the offer out to me and was really, you know, had a really honest conversation about don't accept any offer until I've made an offer to you because I want you to come and work for me. And that for me as a C suite CHRO, that conversation about I want you you're the person that we want it was so powerful for me that really after that conversation none of the other offers actually mattered because you want to feel like an organization wants you really important
0: that's great advice that's really good and sometimes you'd be afraid to do that because you you know you've gone through enough candidates and they turned you down and you but that's a great point and something that really stands out and also i might ask you for the details of that person that you were working with that managed the experience so great because i either want to work with them or have them come work for us one of the two that's amazing. Yeah. All right, last hiring question. We all miss when it comes to hiring. So when you miss on somebody, is there a common theme you can look back on where you're like, I wish I would've done this or I did too much of this. When you miss, why is it you, you typically find that you missed on somebody you hired?
1: So when you say miss, you mean you got something wrong?
0: Yeah, you mean like the person didn't end up working out like, you know, six months in, uh-oh, this isn't the right fit. Why, why would you have missed? What did
1: you miss in the interview? I'm gonna be honest with you, that's only ever happened to me once
0: whoa, okay, well, now I've never got that answer before. Details, please. And I want to know what that one—what happened that one time.
1: That's, um, I, yeah, the person just, I, and actually it wasn't just a shock for me. It was a shock to everybody. They just didn't turn out to be anything like how they portrayed themselves in the interview. And I can still remember it really clearly because it was such a, you know, when you kind of like a, a mouth open kind of point in, in time where you think I, I just I couldn't get it I mean we we'd done so much assessment and we had done forensic referencing I think you know what I think you've got to be really pragmatic about stuff like this I think the look of the draw it doesn't matter how brilliant your recruitment process is look of the draw would say that you you know you're gonna get some kind of examples of where people just don't work out and I think I think it's so important in those types of scenarios and situations to actually be quite pragmatic about it and just go you know what it's not worked out but I think the important thing for me when something hasn't worked out like this one particular example that went disastrously wrong in the most spectacular way and I was so (laughs) I can still laugh about it now because It was just so far from everything that we gleaned in the interview process from, you know, from kind of working together. We'd worked together previously and then it just didn't it just didn't work out. And I think what I was because of that, because it was the one the only one example, and I think I've just been lucky. um, I just made sure that how we had that conversation with that individual, it was elegant and it was done well. And, and I think I remember one of the, the, the best people I've ever worked for saying to me when I was starting out in, in HR, nobody will ever remember what you say to them in those conversations, but everyone will remember how you make them feel. And I've never forgotten that. Mm-hmm. So I always, when I'm delivering bad news, when I'm having really difficult conversations, which is obviously in my kind of job you have to have every day, you get really good at the human element of it because it's a respect thing and there's an elegance there with how you deal with these things and like you and I said before you know I'm a firm believer of you can have any conversation with anyone in the world as long as it's constructed in the right way and that you say the right thing and you really focus on how the recipient's going to receive that message and I think I think yeah that's that's probably um that's my one example of, of something going Drastically wrong.
0: <laughs> I hope whoever's listening to this is taking notes. There is such a wealth of advice here and so much, so many good takeaways. I'm so excited for the breakaway clips that are gonna come. This has been amazing from a hiring perspective. I want to ask you a few more questions before we wrap up. Go for it. What are you working on right now that you're super juiced about, Jordan?
1: Oh God, I'm working on so many super juiced things at the moment, which I'm so I am I'm working a lot and uh, doing a lot of private client work with really spectacular young entrepreneur CEOs. Where, and it's not a formal coaching relationship. So I don't believe in that kind of formal. You turn up once a week and you say, so Oz, tell me what's wor- bothering you today. And then we go through that process. It's about them being able to tell you anything because CEOs, you'll know this, being a CEO is a lonely place. You're on your own. And therefore what you do need is a critical friend someone that's going to give you great advice someone that's going to tell you when you've fucked something up pardon my French all of those things you need that advice and you also need a safe space where you can go to someone when you've had a crap day and you can have a conversation and I also find as well with a lot of the, the, the way that I work with my clients on a one-on-one basis it's also personal and professional. So, you know, the idea that your personal life doesn't spill into your professional life or vice versa, it's rubbish. Of course it does. So it's about can you actually have those conversations with your clients as well? The other thing that I'm working on at the moment, so I'm writing a book um, all about the Warts and all kind of version of HR, because for me, you know, HR doesn't work in a lot of organizations. It's outdated. Um, it isn't providing the employee experience required. And I don't think that's just HR's fault. I also think that, you know, for a lot of organisations, until they've experienced fantastic HR, they don't know what it looks like. So there's an element and, a, you know, there's a, there has to be a capability of taking them on that journey. So I am doing, I want to do a big piece of research about really getting underneath the whats and all in HR, about the no holes barred conversation about what's really going south. In HR, in order to then use that data and that kind of um, to redesign HR for the future in a really compelling way, and I think HR is so important to me. I am so passionate about HR about the role that HR plays in an organization if done well. And what I think we'll probably find, and my my own you know my own experience also is that HR in a lot of organizations doesn't work, and it's really expensive. Um, it doesn't have the right skill set. It can't influence all of those types of things. So I think we are due a massive refresh on HR. It's, it's so, um, it's, you know, it's beyond time. Um, so I'm kind of working on those things at the moment because I want to, I want to give something back. And I want to help people in HR roles who, HR is really hard. It's hard enough to work in HR without then having to justify why you're breathing, why you need investment, why people are important. And I think we're entering an era of truth, I think, Oz, at the moment. I think, you know, as certain generations roll off and the next generation of leaders come in and that's kind of where we're we're aiming towards now, we have a huge opportunity to do something compelling. We've got to get behind Designing an employee experience that excites people. And people want to be inspired when they come to work. They want to feel an authentic connection with the business. Going back to what you were saying about purpose, people want to come to work for an organization with purpose. They want to work for great people. So I want to make that happen. And that's kind of, you know, that's the thing that I'm really passionate about.
0: Love that. Jordan, what's the name of the book and when is it coming out? For, for <laughs> one
1: of the- it's not i've not even done a name for it yet i thought about no f words in hr because there's quite enough swearing in it which is really unconventional for hr but uh i don't know yet but it'll be out soon
0: this is why you and i get along wonderfully i'm also multi-years <laughs> in hr and this is make shit happen over here so you know what i i, I saw a study the other day where the most intellectuals cuss and like the, the like they, they use cuss words in that like i saw this and i'm like this is exactly what I've been waiting for. The revolution is coming from an HR perspective. I am so excited about that, Jordan. I'm going to leave you with one last question. If you had to amplify one nugget of career advice that you maybe didn't have when you were early on in your career, but that you know now, maybe for our younger listeners, what would you say?
1: Find a job that makes you happy. If your job is not making you happy, leave it straight away. Sod it off and go and get something different because... Being happy at work is so important and you can be happy at work in whatever that looks and feels like to you. So I think you know that that would be my advice. Preach.
0: I love it. Jordan, I I gotta tell you, this has been a fantastic episode. One of the longer ones, but it's gonna be amazing. I know we're <laughs> five stars on this. Thank you so love much it. for joining. Oh, no, to-
1: welcome. My pleasure. Great to meet you. Really enjoyed it. All
0: right. Thanks, Jordan.
1: Take care. See you soon.
0: Thank you for listening to Higher Learning with me, Azra Rashid. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.